Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Amy Errett, to our show today. Amy founded Madison Reed with over 30 years of business and operating expertise as a four-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and social mission visionary. She is currently the founder and CEO of Madison Reed, an omni-channel beauty brand that is challenging industry titans in the hair color space. And she's also a partner at True Ventures, where she focuses on investments in consumer and e-commerce startups. Prior to founding Madison Reed, Amy was a general partner at Mavron, a venture capital firm co-founded by former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, and they focused on investments in consumer-facing companies. She also previously served as the chief asset gathering officer at E-Trade, where she ran a $200 million business. She's also also been featured on Fast Company's first ever Queer 50 list of LGBTQ women and non-binary innovators in business and tech in 2020, 2021, and 2022. After three decades in business, Amy noticed a need for an at-home hair color that provides salon quality results using clean ingredients. This led her to create Madison Reed despite having zero experience in the beauty industry or founding a business built around physical products. Amy has a strong belief that women deserve more, not just in their hair color, but also in their lives. In our episode, Amy walks through the twists and turns she faced when founding Madison Reed and the steps she took to validate the idea before going all in. She also shares what she looks for in entrepreneurs as a venture capitalist, how you can find your superpower and zone of genius, and things to keep in mind if you plan to go down the fundraising path. We explore balancing business decisions between your head and your heart, listening to your intuition, and how to manage fear anxiety that might come up when you're starting your business and so much more. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm thrilled. There is so much to talk about in your journey, the multiple businesses that you've worked on, the many career shifts that you've had. But before we go into your story, there was actually something that stood out for me that I found quite interesting about one of your superpowers, and it was all around helping people find their zone of genius. This is something I think about a lot because I think even as I've personally progressed my entrepreneurship journey, I'm always thinking, all right, what's next? What's my zone of genius that I should focus on? So if there's somebody listening who's like, gosh, I don't know what my passion is, or I don't know what is my superpower, what would you tell that person to kind of help them uncover that? So I think the first thing is that as women being very career-minded, we typically in our lives come lowest on a food chain. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether that's children, uh, aging parents, partners, friendships, we're kind of the center glue. So often for women, they never stop long enough to actually be able to get in touch with what are those one or two things that I call effortlessly flow through you that just come easy and give you joy. In my case, it's I love to build teams and create possibilities in categories that seem 
impossible and take on hard things. And I just like that both intellectual challenge and the challenge of creating teams around, you know, human beings working together, striving for something very meaningful. But it took me a long time to get there. And it wasn't until I had some things that happened in my career, some fortunate, some unfortunate, that I sort of got in touch with where's that zone inside me that's just effortless. And it could be different for anybody. It could be, I love numbers and I love quantitative things, or I actually really like hospitality, or I just love operational kinds of hard problems. Everybody has a zone of genius. And I think we're not, we don't stop long enough in life to actually think that through and then create the possibilities of a life that's centered around there because, you know, ultimately, whenever, you know, the journey is, uh, I think our role is to find that slice of happiness and joy in our lives. Oh, that is so powerful, Amy. And there's two things that really stand out that I just want to underscore is one, creating that space is so key. For so long, I never knew what my passion was because I was just working nonstop. And I never understood when people would say that. I was like, what do you mean create space? But it's so true as someone who's kind of gone through their own journey. And the second thing that you said is, what feels effortless to you? I think a lot of us, including myself, kind of discredit things that come naturally because we're like, oh, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like hard. But as I'm getting older and I'm now starting my own business, I'm like, wow, what, how can you focus on your zone of genius? Cause that is where the unlocking happens in your career, in your happiness, in your business, in your personal life, like all around. So I love that. So hopefully that just gives people some food for thought as they're kind of reflecting on their journeys. But I, such a great answer, Amy. I appreciate that. So I now want to jump into your own journey. You know, you actually mentioned something about your superpower where you said, I love building teams and hard, right? Like you're someone that goes right into it and is like, we're going to figure it out. We're going to disrupt an industry. I'm always curious about where does that come from? You know, maybe we can kind of walk through your childhood. If you think there were any pivotal moments that may have kind of shaped you to kind of be this amazing businesswoman and entrepreneur that you are today. Thank you for the compliment. Uh, when you're inside this human being's uh, psyche. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself as having superpowers, but um, my childhood is a, is a story of divorced parents, stock of very strong women. So um, my mom, uh, my aunts, you know, and lots of family around, but women that actually uh, worked and were role models for the possibilities that anything could happen and the possibilities that one needed to be self-sufficient and have your own identity rather than always finding that identity in, you know, the, a partner. So some of that came out of strife in the sense that my mom worked three jobs and, you know, put her three kids in the position to be able to have advantages. You know, education became something really important in my household and working hard, integrity, working hard. So lots of early jobs, lots of you know, taking responsibility really early. I'm the third of three children, the youngest by sort of a stretch. So in some ways, an only child, even though I had older siblings. And I think that was kind of an interesting thing because I played sports, I worked hard. I, you know, just was very focused on the fact that you had to earn things in life. So I feel like I had some disadvantages but out of those disadvantages, like anything else in life, here's another little tidbit of advice. Anytime something isn't going right for you, 
there's actually a pearl of wisdom in what is on the other side. And most of the time people are sort of like, oh, at that moment I couldn't see that, but here's why that happened or here is the result of that. And so in my life, the disadvantages of not coming from a lot of money, not having were turned into things that were motivations for me. And I'm somebody that really doesn't take anything for granted. I'm deeply grateful for everything mm-hmm. that I have and all the love that's in my life and the opportunities that I've been given, which has honestly created, I think, a philosophy in this in Madison Reed, which is I'm very dedicated in giving people a hand up, right? Like I want to pay it forward. People paid it forward with me. And that resulted in, you know, we stand on each other's shoulders. I talk about this all the time in the company and people think, you know, okay, there she goes, crazy lady. But my point is that we have, you know, close to 60% of our workforce are people of color, you know, 85% are women, right? We have a lot of people where the concept of getting medical benefits is, is not something one takes for granted. The concept of a workforce that cares about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is important. So I'm somebody that believes in you pay it forward. You stand on each other's shoulders. Sometimes life throws you curveballs. Sometimes they feel unfair. And so what? The beauty in it is the strength and the wisdom and the survival. And then what did you learn on the other side that kind of gets you faster to wherever that happy place is? So I feel I had, you know, some great role models and that has served me well. And I feel very blessed, even though in some people's minds that wouldn't seem idyllic. For me, it was just perfect. Yeah, gosh, there's so much to unpack there. I have a million questions circling in my head. But one thing you kind of talked about is growing up with divorced parents. It's so amazing that you had just like this incredible powerhouse mom, strong role models, definitely motivating you to be on your feet, be financially independent. And, you know, we'll get into your more of your career stories. But you mentioned, you know, in life, there's obviously always setbacks. And now that you're kind of on the other side, you're like, there's always these pearls that come with it, which I truly believe in. But what would you recommend maybe to someone who's like, you know what, Amy, like, I disagree. I feel like if it's a little unfair, or they have more of a victim personality or mindset, I would say, how do you kind of get out of that? Maybe looking at your younger self, did you ever have those moments that you now reflect on like, gosh, I wish my younger self knew this. Yes, uh, I'm human. And I have had lots of moments where I felt like, wow, that wasn't fair. Why did that happen to me? And then I started to realize I will digress for a second. Okay. But I'll digress because I think the story has some meaning. A very, very close friend of mine. It's very tragic. Super close friend of mine ended up passing away from cancer. And it was kind of an awful experience for her. She said to me early on in the diagnosis, you know, Amy, in the beginning of this diagnosis, I used to think, why me? She said, and then I started to realize, well, why somebody else? Why not me? And that was very powerful for me to understand that sometimes random things happen. Sometimes, excuse my language on your pod, sometimes shit happens in life. And it's not because you're targeted or that the universe is out to get you. It's that shit happens in life. And so what is our journey? And what I've come to understand is every single thing that happens, pay attention. And yes, I have had times of victim mentality. I don't, it doesn't happen that much to me anymore because 
I've come to realize like any moment I waste feeling that way is a moment I wasted from my own growth, right? Like when I'm blaming somebody else, nobody else is responsible for Amy Eric's life, but Amy Eric, right? And I control my own destiny, including mistakes and feeling like a victim and including some things that have been, you know, in bad breaks, but I've also had great breaks. And I've also had, you know, I believe this is just maybe a little bit out there that positive energy in life creates positive energy. The universe is wired to test us as human beings to figure out whether we can cross a journey to find our own happiness and create positive energy in our lives that spreads positive energy. That's what I believe. You know, I want to hang out with human beings who believe the same thing. And so honestly, I'm not, I don't like drama. I'm not interested in toxicity. I just move myself away very politely from those situations. And I try to run a company where bureaucracy and drama and political nonsense, no, not here. Go someplace else. It may mean you're a nice person. It's no judgment. It's just not here. I, we don't, what we have time for is creating the positive energy that will create better lives for our team members and better lives for our guests. If we could do that with great ingredients, and an empowerment story and stay in that zone, realize all the challenges. This does not mean that Madison Reed does not every day face into hard things. It's just that your viewpoint of hard things either says this is happening to me and I'm paralyzed and I'm angry or Ooh, I feel bad. Yes, I feel some anger. I want to let that run through me. Now I want to look at what I can learn through that process. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. And I think that mindset is actually crucial for really any successful entrepreneur that I've come across because like you said there's so many hardships everything is difficult but having and practicing that mentality that there's an opportunity in everything and also being that positive person I very much believe that you attract what you give I actually had a friend the other day say Yasmin, like, how are you such a connector? You have all these incredible women around you. And I don't look at myself like that. I'm like, you know, I think I'm just, you know, this podcast is a passion of mine. And I just, I'm just who I am. And I'm attracting the same kind of women, you know, around me. So I just, I completely agree with the whole positive aspect. And one last thought, because I, I remember when I worked in New York, I was in finance. It was very tough for me to really sit in gratitude. I would write down three things every night 
that I was grateful for. This was like early in my 20s. I'm like, oh my God, working 15 hour days, I'm going crazy. And just that has really helped my mentality of just focusing on gratitude, not being around negative energy. And it's really been super game changing. So I just want to mention that because I think that mindset is so crucial just to be happy and fulfilled in addition to being successful in life. So I appreciate you talking about that. So I kind of now want to go into your career story. You know, it, it was actually quite interesting when I was reading more about you you wanted to go down the path of med school and it kind of took a far turn to the right going into New York, working in finance. So tell me more about that time period and what caused the big shift. I didn't get into medical school. Uh, so, you know, it was really clear to me when I was sort of a junior in college that, you know, and it was incredibly competitive and it became really clear that that path was, you know, going to be a lot more difficult than I thought. Um and that was a lot for me to give up in my own identity. And I think I wanted to go to med school because in the core, I like paying it forward. I like helping people, right? I wanted to sort of spread and I like finance and I like numbers and I like science. So that all seemed like it went together. So when, you know, that curveball was thrown of the realities, uh, it was sort of like, okay, what can I do to get a job and be self-sustaining? And I was lucky enough to get a job in finance in New York and, you know, my career progressed quickly. Um, and so I realized also very quickly, very young in my career that um, I really liked managing people and I really liked numbers and hard problems, but I really liked, you know, parts of the bank that nobody else <laughs> wanted to be involved in, you know, that required like lots of people moving spreadsheets and things like that. And so I was given responsibility super early in my career and I ran with that. And I realized that I like being more of a team player than an individual contributor. Um, you know, I was at the, at a, at a financial institution for some time and then decided to go back to business school and so I went to Wharton and then actually came back to the same financial institution because I there's famous quotes saying, you know, it, I didn't love being, you know, I loved parts of it. But this notion of not being entrepreneurial uh, was something that always felt sort of foreign to me. But when I graduated a place like Wharton and many of my counterparts in other schools, whether they were even GSB or Harvard at that time, the entrepreneurial wave had yet to sort of crest. And so now if you get out of business school and you're not going to start something or be part of a startup, you're like, odd. Well, when I got out of business school and probably some of the hopefully women of a similar age group listening or smiling and laughing, there was only two things you did. You either went and became an investment banker or you went into consulting you know, sort of a, you know, Bain, um, you know, track or a McKinsey track. And so I went back into finance because that's what I knew. And I only stayed a couple of years until I realized like, ah, this is the reason why this, this is wonderful. What an opportunity. I learned a ton, but it doesn't speak to my heart. Right. And so I took the sort of dive and started my first company um, in my you know late twenties. And that was an early time for a woman to go out and moved out West and sort of, you know, this, you know, uh, what I would call like a desire to search for a different world where people weren't coming to work in suits and, 
you know, uh, you know, stockings and, you know, like all the stuff that I grew up believing that a woman in a certain professional role should be dressed as or look as or be like, or, and I, you know, opted to go a different path. And that has taken me down a path of being an entrepreneur and in Silicon Valley and being an investor, you know, a full-time VC and having multiple companies. So it's been an interesting journey. I was probably early in my age group to kind of explore that. Uh, but kind of, I'll, I'll end on this. Um, uh, I don't know if you know the Enneagram. Do you know the Enneagram? Yeah, okay. I don't know what number you are. I know what number I am. Uh, so I'm an eight, which is called the truth seeker or the challenger, right? And so it was always clear to me is that I'm not, I mean, I'll just say this. I really am not good working for somebody else. And it took me a long time and a lot of fits and starts to realize like, that's the core issue. It's not that I don't think other people are incredibly talented and have been mentored by them and look up to them. It's just like that zone of genius again, my zone of genius, when I work for somebody else, it's not good for all those involved, as I say. So why would I ever put that other organization or me in that position again? So I realized really early that I'm much better in either a partnership kind of arrangement where there's little hierarchy or I'm much better in creating something that has little hierarchy. And uh, so that was one of the guiding principles of why kind of coming to the Wild West be was something that felt more natural than staying in a place like New York where consulting media or finance or fashion was what you needed to do. And that was kind of the end of it. Yeah. And I'm curious. So, you know, you said you went to business school, you went back to the financial institution and the concept of entrepreneurship was foreign. Like you said, at the time, there wasn't many women going to Silicon Valley, starting businesses. So what was your aha moment? Because I realized when I was working in finance, I really had to seek other examples because I thought, again, like wearing suits and making money, like this is the end all be all. I, I totally understand. So what was the glimmer of hope or really what opened up your mind that, oh, there's a different way to do things and I actually don't have to work under this person? Well, some of it is a long and windy road of who, what I was doing at the time and who I was reporting to. And there were just some things going on that I just like did not think were, it just didn't fit for my for my integrity and things like that. And, uh, and so I, you know, was kind of in a situation where I was sort of looking around saying, you know, much more senior people, like what is happening here? And it just didn't work for me. And so for me, the exit was my choice, but it was an exit of just saying like, this isn't, I don't agree with how things are being run and how people are being treated. So my exit was more of a like, okay, I got to go. If I'm critical of this, then I should go do it myself. And um, yeah, I mean, my first startup, like I took, you know, I had limited, but I took all of my 401k money and maxed out my credit cards and took one loan from a friend's father for $100,000 and started my first company, paid him back in six months with interest, then just, you know, owned a lot of my company when I sold it to a public company. I never was venture backed in my first startup. And, you know, that was a more scrappy, you know, profitable because you had to be kind of business, right? But, you know, didn't get that big, but sold it for enough money that I had a first exit when I was, you know, 34 or something, 35. And so I had enough resources then to start to think about choices. And I think this is where 
women again in particular is really hard because most women have a lot of other responsibilities other than just choices solely for themselves. And because of that, we tend to think of ourselves or our needs at in a lower value chain than other people. And I'm a mom and, you know, named to the Madison Reed after my kid. And, you know, so the juggling of a lot of things puts potentially professional desires or that quest for what's that thing inside of me that's so powerful that I want to unleash it kind of in the background. You know, for me, having a little bit of that financial freedom, it wouldn't say a ton in today's state, allowed me to have a quest of what I did next. And I was very fortunate. I joined through a whole series of people that I knew E-Trade very early in its maturation and you know, saw the ride up and saw the ride down. But all of a sudden I was in the thick of this explosion in the late, in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002 in Silicon Valley. Like that was the first wave of backing companies, crazy valuations, things going public. And you're like, what is happening here? There's no profits. Um, there's a lot of planes, but no profits. Um, this is weird. And so I kind of started to understand a different world of growth and possibilities and, you know, public boards and, you know, venture folks and relationships. And then, you know, from there uh, in the ride down, I was like, okay, it was great. I, I had some more resources. I had done okay and learned a lot about the internet. I mean, we were pioneers. I mean, when E-Trade was formed, people had like brokers that managed their money. Nobody would ever, there was a time where human beings managing their own money on the internet, that, that was blasphemy, right? And uh, so I was in the beginning of something that was very disrupted in this thing called the internet, which was new. People don't know that, but you know, in 2000, the internet wasn't, you know, it's like a 23 year old phenomenon. And for most people, it feels like email or text or it's been there forever. I mean, the iPhone was 2007. I just asked people to think about the maturations of what's happened so quickly in technology. And then I had my worst, you know, my stumble in my career. And so this is an important part of the story, which is I got fired from a job that I thought I was doing particularly well from a company that the founder had been on me for years to come and take over. And so I came and took a company over. Uh, the person had kind of exited to some extent and then out of nowhere, wanted to come back and run the company and fired me in a hotel lobby on a Monday morning. And I had no clue it was coming. And I had Forex the company and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't really matter. What matters more was how I dealt with that situation. At the moment, it felt like the worst thing that ever happened to me. And today it was the best thing that ever happened. I, of course, we got into a lawsuit and my shares were valued below the value. I mean, it was all these things that weren't good. And in retrospect, I don't think they knew the extent of what they were doing and maybe got bad legal counsel. And we entered into a lawsuit and ended up getting settled. That was a good thing financially for me. But the 18 months in a toxic thing taught me a lot about what space I want to live in and what space I don't want to live in. And there was a lot, I had a lot of anger and I had a lot of resentment. And I remember I went into therapy and my therapist said this great thing. So here's the, here's a here's a tip for everybody. I want you to take the picture of the founder that you're so pissed off at and put it on your mirror. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They said, no, no, that's your guy. And I said, what do you mean? They said, oh no, no. If you look at that every day, you're going to realize like that's just a that's just a vehicle for you to go through to learn about yourself. It's just metaphoric to why is this so humiliating? 
what what is it about you that is you know you're publicly humiliated you're disappointed you're angry you're why aren't you wanting to deal with those feelings you know shit happens amy you know and that was my victim stage shit happens so like you didn't do anything wrong here. Like you have to take responsibility for signs or signals or how you behave. And this is never a hundred zero. You know, it's like when friends split up or get a divorce and somebody has a story. Well, it's all blah, blah, blah. And you think, well, probably maybe sometimes it's a 70, 30 deal, but there's still 30, right? Like we all are responsible for everything that happens in life. So that was my moment of reckoning. And I came out the other side and, you know, started working with Howard Schultz and became a venture capitalist full-time. And that was the genesis of my investing and learning in six and a half years, how to become a VC. And with that, if that never happened, I would not have. And the genesis of then deciding I loved investing, but it wasn't a hundred percent of who I am. I like being in the seat of the founder and the CEO, and I want to build something. So the genesis of me then leaving and, you know, starting this crazy hair color journey. Well, I love it. I want to back up a little bit because you going through such a, I mean, tough moment of losing your job. You're thinking you're about to take over this company. You were shocked and surprised. Obviously there's so much there that you learned. And I appreciate you being so open and vulnerable about, you know, all the things that you were working on. Looking back at that time, you know, you said like, it's not only a hundred percent the founder's fault, but like, were there any signals or signs that now as a you know, you became an investor and obviously now starting your own another business that you kind of are like, all right, I would never do it like that again. I probably would have never taken the job if I had understood the signals. You know, I'll never forget my wife had um, dinner with this person and their significant other before. And we got into the car and my wife said, you, you shouldn't do this. This is this is not our people. These aren't our people. The values, the difference, the And so I, a lot of times for eights in the Enneagram, you actually think you could take on anything and you'll be okay and you'll smooth it over and you can, and a lot of it was that I wasn't, my eyes weren't wide open to what I deserved. So I settled, right? I had taken, I was, I wanted to take a year off after E-Trade and I had promised myself and my wife to do that. And I lasted six months. And so the truth was like, even though I was like in a hurry, And so I, instead of like just waiting out the time and looking at all the possibilities, I just jumped into something, right? So having said that, yeah, I take responsibility. I I probably never should have done it, one. Number two, there were a lot of patterns of behaviors that I put up with that were not like things I look back on. And I think, why did I let that go on? Or why didn't I stand up for myself? Or why didn't I just say, oh, this, because the interesting part, my wife, who's very smart, not she's not a business person, but she is like the core of an emotionally intelligent person. About three years into this, and I was there maybe five years, four and a half years, three years, she said, you know, I'm watching you come home every day and it feels like you're getting smaller and smaller and less happy. So what was it in me that just kept going that wasn't recognizing that I actually wasn't having a very good time and I deserve to have a good time? So I think there were, I take responsibility for a lot of that. I should have pulled my own ripcord. I should have, right. But I had also built a management team that I felt responsible for and blah, blah, blah. So the truth of the matter is that we can, we can rationalize anything. We can make something everybody else's fault. We can make it a hundred percent our fault. It doesn't matter. What is, what did you learn and what about that 
had some, that was a springboard to a whole bunch of things in my life, including the thing like, oh, you're not good working for somebody else. So why would you ever put yourself in that situation again? And a lot of people would think, well, that's an obnoxious thing to say, Amy. What makes you so, it's just true, right? And so the other part that I would say about finding your genius is stop ignoring things that are just true that you might think are unattractive about yourself. They are just true. And what is so bad about that? I can't remember when it was, but you know, it was probably three or four years, two or three years ago, I'm driving in the car with the Matt, TMR, we call her the Madison Reed. And TMR sit next to me and she said, Hey mommy, how long did it take in your life to get comfortable in your own skin? You know, I almost drove the car off. The <laughs> um, but I also thought like, Oh, what an, what an interesting question. So the first thing I said is, well, what makes you think I am? She said, well, you're pretty honest about like your, you know, the things that you think are your blind spots and the thing. And I have so many blind spots. I mean, it's crazy, right? Like I have places that I just am not evolved in, but I'm past this point in my life of just ignore, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm no, I'm not. I am a flawed human being with blind spots and there are, and everybody else is a flawed human being with blind spots. And so do we want to have eyes wide open in life and have empathy? And people ask me all the time, like, are you really, do you dislike that founder? And I'm like, obviously they were going through something. It's not mine. I don't own it. I'm not responsible for it. Did it feel good? No. Did it suck? Yeah. Was it fair? No. Will life go on? Yeah. Right. So the point of the matter is like, I don't believe in revenge. I don't like, I just think you pay it forward in life and you let it go and you learn your lessons and you leave the rest behind. It doesn't serve you. Gosh, what a powerful question your daughter asked you because, you know, I'm so inspired by your daughter and we'll get into Madison Reed and, you know, her crucial aspect in that. But, you know, her saying, are you comfortable in your own skin? And you're like, you know what? There's like you being so self-aware of yourself of, this is what I enjoy. These are my blind spots. Like that is the biggest gift that anyone could have. And I think as founders, you having that self-awareness is so crucial. And I'm curious, you know, you're someone who has invested in so many founders, met with so many founders. What would you say really makes a founder that you're excited about, or you think that has potential to make it big in their life and big could be relative to whatever they want to pursue. So I think it's sort of three things. One, self-awareness. You can't be in my opinion, a effective founder, if you're just at some point, your business or the people in your business require you to show uh, empathy or require you to understand that your foibles could have some negative impact on what's happening in the company. And there could very well be a time. And I want to say this where Madison Reed, the entity is better served by somebody else being CEO and founder. It's not on my list of things that I'm at high right now. But if that was true, I'd be okay because I, my job is to do what's best for the company, the investors, the team members, right? The get the our guests, our consumers, right? So one thing is self-awareness. Second thing, the the number one thing that I look for in every founder is resilience. It's not just persistence; it's resilience. It's the ability to get knocked down 30,000 times. And, and that thing of, oh, what did we learn? What won't we do again? Hmm. Versus like, look at what all these terrible people are doing to us. 
No, nobody gets up every morning and thinks, well, maybe L'Oreal, but nobody else gets up every morning and thinks like, oh, wow, Madison Reed is terrible. People get up every morning wanting their hair to look great. And our job is to make that happen. And having said that, there's been twists and turns every single day. There's things that I'd rather they went slightly left than go to right. But if I'm stuck in why did it go right instead of what what did we learn and how does that not now what do we do with going left? You know, um, because, you know, uh, resilience also has an implication that you have a growth mindset. And that's a third. So it's self-awareness, resilience, and a growth mindset. And the growth mindset is what am I learning? Life is like, if you get really in touch for me, at least being grateful, gosh, I've done a lot of things. Wow. There's so many more things, right? There's so many more things that I can learn from and I can have different experiences and I could affect other people's lives and other people could affect my life. And like the possibilities are endless. And so I'm interested in making every day count every day. When I get up and I think I am the luckiest person in the world, I have my health, I have love in my life. I have, you know, enough resources to live a life that's far beyond probably what I ever dreamed of being a seven-year-old kid with divorced parents. I've tried to do the best I can do to make other people's lives more impactful and meaningful for them. I'm very, I'm a very, I'm grateful. And there's so much more. Even in the moments of the shit storm, excuse my language, and there's lots of those. Yeah, totally. And one narrative that I try to even change for me, if I, if I see myself complaining a little bit, I'm like, Yasmin, you get to have this business. You get to have a team. And it, that, that vernacular change just puts things in perspective. I'm like, I can't complain about this because I get to get up and run a company that I want, you know? So the thing that I would urge you to think about that is that is a thousand percent true and giving you enough space, give yourself enough space to actually recognize the anger or the fear, the fear, right? Fear is a creativity killer. Fear and anxiety can paralyze and they are human and normal. It is normal to be scared of consequences and the unknown. That is a normal human reaction. So I think as human beings, we sometimes want to hide that, right? Like, oh, I'm not scared. I am petrified, by the way. And so can I be in touch with that fear and see it as part of my humanity? Not be paralyzed by it, but be like, oh, when I was this scared last time, what happened? Ah, I got through the other side. Mm, maybe there's a little wisdom there, right? But not saying it doesn't exist. It does exist. I love that. The fear and anxiety is there and it might not be as straightforward, but if something doesn't go right at the end of the day, I'm like, oh gosh, let's, let's work harder to make it work, which is not the right mentality. Like you said, to pause and sit with it because working from a place of ease is when creativity happens and your mindset for opportunity opens up. So anytime I feel that way, I'll stop working, take a walk, try to like double down on self-care because I need my mindset to be in the right place. But I love that. I actually think that's huge. And anytime I'm in that mentality, I try to quickly shift and focus on self-care, which is not how I used to operate pre-business. So such a beautiful thing you just said. Business sometimes gets confused with some notion that we as leaders are superhuman. Like we don't have emotion. We don't, we're not scared. We're not anxious. We're not, you know, angry. We're not 
resentful. We're not like those things are all true because we're human. So society puts these kind of false narratives on our humanity, which then creates leadership that has a false narrative about the people that you work with's humanity, which then creates a false narrative about who works for them's. And so, you know, I have lunch with Madison Reed team members anywhere I am every Wednesday at 12.15 Pacific time on Zoom. It's mandatory. If you're not on PTO, you're having lunch with me. And I am completely human. I talk about what's going well, what's not going well, where we are developmentally, why things might not feel well. We use a tool called Glint, which you might know, which is like a culture survey tool on a quarterly basis. What did the Glint scores say? I don't hide anything. And what I've come to understand is through exposing your humanity, people actually respect you more. They don't want they want you to be strong to give them a guidepost, but they don't, they want you to be human because that makes them understand that you actually authentically could care through your humanity. And the world is going in a funny, weird place. We are getting further away from our humanity. And as human beings, we actually need each other and we need love, which is the most powerful human emotion that exists. We don't need hate. It doesn't serve us. Right. So imagine a world where we all looked at our blind spots, owned them every day, recognized our feelings, you know, could be functional, you know, rational, love each other, you know, create wonderful possibilities. Imagine that world. No, that's so beautiful. Well, I feel like we can talk about all these topics for hours, but I now want to focus on Madison Reed. I know, you know, Prior to you starting, I, this was your fourth business. You mentioned earlier that you know you were an investor, you were in venture capital, and you actually passed on investing in Dollar Shave Club. And I want to kind of hear about that story. I know it's like the one that got away, but why did you pass on it? And how did that kind of inspire you maybe to start thinking through what, what would have become Madison Reed? So the irony of it is my CFO today was the CFO of Dollar Shave Club and Mike, Mike Dubin, the founders on my board. So there you go. Life comes full circle. Um, uh, I passed on it because like in any other partnership, people have different viewpoints. And so, you know, I wanted to do it. Uh, and that's not saying that that would have been right because there was many I wanted to do that work that didn't work out. And there were some I didn't want to do that worked out beautifully, which is the beautiful part about early stage investing. But what it did get me to do was to realize that these categories, whether it's shaving or hair color, were categories that had been done an old way. They were categories where there were just incumbent products or providers, CPG companies. And they were, you know, in the Dollar Shave Club case, it was like you went on, bought a razor and a locked up, you know, remember the funny videos that Mike did, you know, a locked up, you know, cabinet, like someone's going to, you know, hurt each other with a razor in a, in a Walgreens. But nonetheless, they were locked up and, you know, that required somebody like getting out of their house and going. And this was even prior to the wave of Amazon happening. Right. And so I was, in, uh, and the beauty was guys shave, majority of men shave repetitively for a lifetime. So what I learned very quickly about being an investor, especially about D to C e-commerce was it doesn't work out in the unit economics unless you have embedded behavior that causes retention. And so I was looking for, I just went on a quest, like what's the woman's analog to that? And, you know, hair color emerged. 
uh, from the numbers, the analytics, the data. And so initially I thought, you know, okay, maybe I'd incubate this and stay, a, you know, the investor and find a team. And then as I dug deeper into the lack of choices, especially initially at the at-home box, no color range choices, certainly terrible ingredients, like horrific ingredients. And I was like, oh, we could do better than that. Um, and then could we wrap around advice and algorithm to color match, you know, uh, the componentry and the prestige nature didn't exist, right? It was a, a bad box for $8 on the shelf that still exists and us. So it was sort of like, ooh, there's a big opportunity here. And that was the genesis of it. And the more research I did and the more, the more things that seemed like they were impossible that we found the solution to, I thought, uh-huh, there's something big and enduring here. And then the last piece that I would say to you is I have an affinity towards consumer brands that have emotion. So my affinity is that I think that every great brand that a consumer really knows that is what I call a legacy brand, a brand that just doesn't start and goes away, right? Now, whether that be Howard at Starbucks, you know, whether that be Nike, you know, whether that be, you know, Lululemon, you know, just go down the list, Whole Foods. I mean, we could go down the list of brands that are iconic, that when you say the name, you know. And those are things that are based on some way that it makes you feel not necessarily the tangible thing it is, right? So when you know that you're driving across the country and you're in the middle of Nebraska, and if you're from Nebraska, I don't mean to offend you, but it's a big state to drive across the country. One knows this because uh, my wife and I drove TMR to college last year in Boston from San Francisco, believe it or not, with our dog, which is kind of crazy, but we she deserved the send-off that we gave her. And um, Nebraska is really long. But you know what? Every time I drove in Nebraska and I saw that Starbucks sign, I knew what I was going to get. I was going to be able to get a clean bathroom. I was going to be able to get the same coffee that I knew. Maybe it's not, you know, X that you may like from a connoisseur standpoint. But there was a standard of something that stood emotionally for stability, needs, you know, good, right? Good. And so the same thing, you know, you're walking down the street and you see an Apple store. And what do you say to yourself? You're like, oh, I could pop in there and I know that I'll get a certain quality of a standard, right? So I wanted to build something in this category that had an enduring legacy. And we are not there yet, but I think we're on a path because the other part of this is these things take a really long time because you have to educate. And in our case, we had to educate every woman that the bifurcation between an $8 box that she, she could do it at home initially because there was a prestige product that had, and you don't have to put up with the smell, the itching, the burning, the whatever. We have 60 shades, not eight. We do have advice. And then when we ventured into having stores ourselves and we could do your hair for less than half the money and half the time with ingredients and transparency of color, and we have 86 stores now that we could retrain and educate a woman about what she deserves and the convenience of that with a product that stands for quality. So that's a long, that was a long answer, but I desired something that was emotionally connected. And, you know, last thing I'll say about this, we have a term at Madison Reed, which is confident is the new beautiful. Everything we've talked about today 
I think is encompassed in that term. Our job at Madison Reed is, yeah, how does your hair look externally? That is our, that's number one job, right? We take that seriously. But number two job or even equal job is how do you feel about yourself after you use our product or you walk out of the Madison Reed hair color bar? Because when you're, for whatever reason, when your hair looks amazing, I don't care what anybody says. And when your hair doesn't look so good, you have the opposite, bad hair day. It is something about, and man, the pandemic was the, it was the defining moment of realizing that our thesis was true. Well, and Amy, I'm I'm also curious. I know we're coming up on time, but I want to ask you one last question that I think is helpful. You know, so much of entrepreneurship, people think you got to always move fast and break things. And one side, yes, that's important. But the other side, it's not how it works realistically. So I kind of want to get your perspective around before you guys, quote unquote, officially launched, what were some things you were thinking about testing and figuring out in the beta? Because I think a lot of women listening have ideas and might not know, oh my gosh, how do I take this from zero to hundred? But there's so much we can do before launching to test out whether it's a viable idea or not. So I'd love to hear what you did before going live. It's such an insightful question from somebody who's obviously been doing this. And so uh, there were three things that we did. One was we had to see whether the physical color worked. And it took us 15 months from the time we incorporated till we launched. And that was because we were testing. So we had a thousand women in a beta. We tested business models, subscription only, didn't go so well. Subscription in a single box. And so we landed on that pricing. What would the, what would the price be? What was the efficacy? Should our call center be certified licensed colorists? Did they have to be? Were we able to color match you without seeing you? Did our algorithm of 18 questions and a quiz work? Was it 18 questions? Was it four questions? Was it 23 questions? Where was the drop off, right? Like we, every step of the way, we took this to learn something new, to launch us, to get the, what I talk about now is, you know, the, the first store, you know, happened in, you know, 2000 and, 18 or something like that. It wasn't that long ago. And the first store was a pop-up in the Flatiron. We had no idea what we were doing. Four chairs, out of home advertising. Ford gave me 75 grand. Go, you know, get a part-time lease, try it out, see, you know, out of home advertising around Chelsea. And in five weeks we were full. And I'm like, oh boy, price point was wrong. $45. We were like, we couldn't, you can't make any money at that. So like we, but we knew that we were onto something where she wanted convenience faster. And in the beginning, the big issue was the early adopters for us were people that cared about ingredients. This was nine years ago. I'd ask my friends, do you care what's in your hair color? Well, I guess I should, but no, how am I going to look right? Like vanity trumps all. Now we look like heroes, but nine years ago, nobody cared. Today it's table stakes, right? So my point is that understand what are the things that you think are your stake in the ground and the things that you need to know to actually launch your business and then test those. You know, we videotaped 53 women in their bathrooms and using a, we on Craigslist, we'll give you a hundred dollars. Would you color your hair in front of us? Like 53 women said, yes, we brought a video camera. You know, what color are you? Dark black. Great. I went and bought a box of L'Oreal gave it to them, watch them unpackage it. None of them read, not one of the 53 read the instruction. Not one. The gloves were terrible. The stuff was slippery. The oil base got all over their bathroom. People did, you know, it was like the thing of shampoo and conditioner was inferior, but we didn't know until we saw the, you could have a theory that's absolutely wrong because it's what you think you want it to be. I call that 
the lies we tell ourselves, right? Now, sometimes the lies one tells themselves in a business, you must, or you would not go on, right? You would not get up every morning looking at the pros and cons and say, oh, there's 73 cons and two pros. Hmm, I'll choose that, right? But at the same time, your business has to face into the reality and it's good to be wrong and it's good to have a growth mindset, but be resilient enough to keep trying, right? So we've tested, I mean, I could give you 7,000 things today. You know, we're still testing. We test all the time and we have to have a continuous feedback loop. And we started out with 19 shades. I think we have 59 now and we'll have 63 by the end of the year. But that's only come because there's never, there wasn't a great strawberry blonde and it took us three times. You know, in the beginning, the results on, that's the other thing is watch your customer's feedback. We have a continuous NPS channel. I read it all day long, which is why you had to help me turn my notifications off before we started, because I'm looking at it. And if I see four things in a day that are the same, I'm like, oh, we got a shipping problem. Oh, there's a problem with this. Oh, this got shipped. That's not a bad. Yeah, it happened. Shit happens. But it's sort of like, are you in touch with what your customer values and doesn't like? And can you face into have the courage to listen to what they're telling you. They tell, I sit in the hair color bars. I, I sit with, I mean, if people are listening and you've met me in a hair color bar, it's probably true. I sit with you. I want to know what works. Why does the brand work for you? What can we do better? What are the things that have been good and what would you improve? I want them to tell me, not because I want to be defensive. I want to be thinking like, first of all, thank you. Thank you for giving us a chance. And then tell me, because we can fix it. Anything's possible. So if you run a consumer company, please do not ignore the consumer. Yes. And what I love so much, there's two things that stand out about what you said. I mean, there's a lot there, but I just want to unpack one. I love how scrappy you were in the beginning just to test out the product. Like you said, you went on Craigslist, you put it up there. I think there's so many women that come up to me, they're like, yes, and I have this idea. And I'm like, before you start putting so much money behind it and go down whatever path, just test it, be scrappy, make it like do it manually just to see if the problem exists. So I just want to highlight I love that you guys were even doing that early on. And secondly, not everything is perfect before you go live. Like you said, $45, like you knew the demand was there, but you're, you know, shifting pricing. Like you're still doing this today as a brand, as you were mentioning, and you're way farther along than even me and my company. So I love that aspect too, because nothing is perfect and you don't always have the right answers. It's just about pivoting and taking one step in front of the other. The thing I would close on on that is many people have this ultimate fear that they're wrong. Being wrong is good. What's wrong is if you are have a, if you cannot, life gets better when you're, it's what I call being curious. Hmm. I had that thought. Why was it different? Hmm. That's interesting. With complete neutrality. I don't want to fight for my position. If I do, I'm not open to the possibility that it could be improved, including being yourself. I am a different human being than the seven-year-old that was there when my parents got divorced because I've, paid, I've tried to have some eyes wide open of the possibilities that the growth mindset could serve me and the people in my life well. And so I'll leave you with this. Like I, if there's only one thing that anybody gets out of this today is it is all possible. Life is filled with glorious, 
opportunities. We just have to have our eyes wide open. Oh, I have goosebumps just hearing that. Well, Amy, this was such a joy. I feel like the hour went by so quick. Could have talked to you for hours, but thank you for being with us, sharing your story and being an inspiration to so many women. I so appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Thanks for what you do. And thank you for having me. I had fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.